Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Gentlemen, how are we all? Good, Matthew. Good, Matthew. Well, thank you. Okay, well, better explain what's going on, hadn't I? So we've got, we've, we spoke with Bryce earlier in the week. He, he mentioned something to me, which was that uh, this ensemble, the team uh, have uh, gathered to um, actually help UBS try and understand what's going on in the nickel market and the cobalt market. Um, I thought we'd kind of try and elbow our way in on the act and try and um, talk about some of the things that big banks like UBS uh, are wanting to understand. So I appreciate you bringing the guys here, Bryce. Um, we're gonna, so if you're okay, we're gonna little romp through the US uh, ecosystem for this critical sure. mineral stuff. Um, and also talk about maybe some more practical stuff on the ground. So um, without further ado, why don't you introduce the team, Bryce? I'll do that. So it's a pleasure. Uh, we don't often wheel them out often, but I thought it'd be interesting for you and the viewers. Uh, they've seen my face a few times, but there's obviously part of the uh, part of what we're creating at Jedwire is organizational depth. Uh, so you've got Greg Young. Uh, so Greg was one of the founding partners of Glencore. Uh, set up the USA business for Ivan. Uh, original background was Ferroalloys trading, nickel trading, cobalt trading, built up the cobalt book for Glencore. Uh, so he was co-CEO for over a decade, ran the Stanford office. The liquids office was the other co-CEO uh, based out of Houston. Uh, kind of retired from Glencore, if you like, 2013, 14, around the IPO. Uh, and I guess I approached Greg, we've kept in touch. We worked together closely. We moved all the Falcon Bridge product um, after we acquired the um, Canadian-based metals company. Um, so Greg obviously had one of is one of the preeminent metals traders of, of, uh, in the United States, um, and for him to come back on in an executive capacity, really exciting for the company. Uh, we've got Wade Yalman. Uh, so Wade, uh, again, we all know each other well. So Wade uh, was OM Group, uh, which had the Coca-Cola refinery uh, in Finland. Uh, subsequently sold to Freeport, uh, and one of the again one of the uh, one of the most significant cobalt traders uh, for 20, 25 years of his career. Uh, and so Wade is uh, working with Greg, who's based in the, in the United States also. Um, so both of these, both Wade and Greg came on as a large part, as a large result of uh, San Miguel Paulista, which we'll kind of, we've spoken about in other calls. Uh, Klaus Woolhoff was the other executive. So Klaus worked for me after we acquired Falcon Bridge in 2006, we had to keep the, um, obviously the, 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 the headquarters in Canada for industry Canada purposes, foreign approval. Uh, so Klaus, we had a Klaus run a, a custom feed business essentially. So it was a 100 to 200 USC business trading uh, mats, concentrates, spent catalysts, hydroxides, uh, similar to what Wade had functionality for at OEM Group essentially, um, our industry peers. Uh, so that's now formed obviously part of the Glencore trading book. It sits within the nickel book. So it's part of that 2.5 to 2.8 bill guidance that you see uh, Steve Kalman and Ivan providing these days. Uh, and so Klaus uh, joined Jevway. He's been, he was working with us from early on, from around the, the inception and came on as an executive, again, associated with the San Miguel Paulista uh, refinery. So I guess the concept is, I mean, the business that Klaus ran was really based around the Sudbury smelter, Nickelberg refinery, and uh, we had an agency agreement with BCL. So for context, Klaus had 35 traders based around Japan, North America, uh, Europe. Uh, the business that Wade ran, again, very significant. Uh, so there weren't, at the time of the Extrata Glencore merger, there was a trader from each side who sat on each, who was dealing with the antitrust with the DOJ and EC. I mean, for context, so... Uh, I was on the Extrata side. I had a Glencore peer. Uh, Glencore Extrata in a 60,000-tonne cobalt market, we controlled around 38, 39 at the time in 2013. Uh, you don't see the product. You only see the production volumes. You don't see the traded volumes. And I don't know. I mean, Wade at the time would have, at, um, running a Coca-Cola, would have probably been trading another 11. So for context, I mean, the last time this group was together, they controlled effectively 80% of the global cobalt market. So... To get that level of capability and depth in uh, in a company like Chevois, it's kind of unique. Makes my job a lot easier since Greg's come on. Uh, he's certainly just hit the ground running and uh, taken over that customer interface as we really look to build up a, a, a business model which is a little different from others. I mean, I've spoken, if you look on the investment presentations, that trading business and the refining aspect of our business, we think it's exciting. 
because we really value that customer interface, that customer interaction, the direct ability to sit down with automakers, sit down with battery makers. Uh, he or she who controls the product is king. And I think that trading mentality is certainly part of the culture that we're looking to bring into Jevois and to have three of individuals with the level of capability they've got. It's pretty exceptional. I mean, it's uh, certainly, uh, uh, it's not only exceptional for a small company like Jevois that's capped at 400 mil. I think it's stronger than many of the largest trading organisations globally. Uh, so that's my ex kind of introduction. Um, and just on the, after that, I'll kind of pass across to yourself for Q&A. It's very informal uh, yeah. way to kind of um, handle cobalt, Klaus, Nickel, and we'll try and help out your viewers. Fantastic. I appreciate that. It's, it, it is in, it's meant to be informal. There's five ties in the room, so we need to work on the, on the, uh, the, the optics a bit. But we'll, let's try and keep it casual. Um, if I may, I kind of want to address this at Greg, if, if I can. Okay, so given Greg's background, he's based in, in the US. I think you told me, where are you? You're, um, where are you based, actually, uh, Greg? Um, I'm in Connecticut, outside of New York City. Right. Okay. So in Connecticut, that's in New York City. Fine. Um, this is a small, well, 400 million market cap. It's, for you and your, your background at Glencore, this is still a small company, right? It's, it's getting there. Um, why did you want to get involved with this guy, given where it came from? You know? <laughs> that's an interesting setup for his question for Bryce. Um, actually, when I joined Glencore in 1987, um, it was small. It was called Clarendon Limited then. It was really just a shell of what it is today. It had no assets, um, no production, and we were literally just a trading company. So why Gervois? It's a second chance to build a company. Gervois is a fantastic platform. Um, it's young. It's new. These battery metals are exciting. Um, access to capital, people are looking to invest in this space. Clearly, the battery narrative um, is everywhere these days. Um, so why Gervois? It's a second chance to build a company, to, to build a real entity that makes a difference. In this case, it's going to be um, a Western supply chain, um, all ethical mining. And we are really going to focus on just the, the top tier of, of ethical mining and Western supply chain. That's the difference. That's the difference you're buying into. Okay, it's still you don't. There's not a lot of moving parts in this. In the sense, we've got Idaho, cobalt in Idaho, and we've got S and P down in Brazil for for the nickel. It's going to take a lot more than that to get up to the kind of scale that's going to keep you interested, surely. So, what's what are you advising the team to do next? You're you're kind of an oversight guy, strategic guy. So, what have they got to do that they're not doing yet? So we're looking at both organic and inorganic expansion. Um, clearly, we can't talk about specifics, but um, you are right that, you know, three years from now, if we're still sitting with, with just ICO and SMP, then it will have been less of an exciting um, period that I'm hoping for. So we're really um, looking at pieces of the puzzle and trying to build a much bigger metrics than we have now. Right. Okay. And you're, you want an ethical supply chain. I think everyone's talking that game. You've got to, because the big institutions where you're probably going to have to go for your money are talking that language too. So did the US make sense to focus on? Because there were some African assets. Did it just make sense, given this vision, to start in the US? I wasn't with Gervois when we bought ICO, so I joined after. It certainly makes sense. The USA has no production. Um, the U.S. OEMs are pining for exposure to um, um, to mining assets and in the ground cost structure. So I think the USA makes a lot of sense. Um, we do need to expand our geography a little bit to take some additional space and just um, give us um, a, a broader platform. Um, but we really have to focus on ethics and ESG first. Sure. But everyone's talking that game. So how do you deliver it? We focus on top tier assets, um, good investment platform. Um, and I think the team that we've assembled here today has a much better perch to assess the market than many other people who are entering the space. Why do you say that? Well, we just have um, between the three of us, 
Um, Bryce, I'm going to leave you out of this one for now. We have almost 100 years of experience in commercial transactions. So really the commodity business, yes, it's predicated on mineralization and quality of asset. But if you don't have the people who have experience and expertise to bring the asset to market, then, um, you know, it, it, it's good people, Matthew, that make a good business. It's not just the asset. So bad people can ruin a good asset. You guys, I'm, I'm interest, interested in this because there's a lot of sales guys here. So they're traders. They're, they're, they're buying, they're selling, right? Not so much on the exploration development yet. So does that give us a clue as the sort of way that you're going to build up this company or the way that you're suggesting you guys build up this company? Um, we have engineers, but I think as um, as we broaden this conversation a little bit to Klaus and Wade, I think you'll understand that we have a very good handle on the technical aspects of not just our production, but the products itself, which is very important. Right. Okay. Now, the, the, this is these are industrial commodities, and yes, they're commodities, but they have specific applications and chemistries that go into these applications, and um, we understand that. Okay. And in terms of plumbing into the U U.S. ecosystem, as you said, you know, Idaho's, I think, is it the only uh, source of cobalt? Domestic it, it, cobalt? The only cobalt mine in the USA, yes. Right. Okay. So, you know, we, we talk a lot about the critical minerals list from various countries, but the U.S. is starting to get quite um, aggressive with the language being used. We've seen that from when Trump's administration, we're seeing it again with Biden's administration and the amount of money, State of the Union speech, the amount of money that's being talked about, being allocated to, you know, you know, um, carbon footprints and carbon neutral and ac across the board. How do you plumb into a system like that? Can you bring something to the table on that front? Well, we, we've confirmed conversations with the DFC, DOD and the DOE. Um, the government moves methodically. Um, systematically, so nothing happens um, um, terribly quickly, and they make sure to dot their I's and cross their T's. So we are in the process of accessing um, their metrics of system. I will say my own personal belief, when a government deems a, um, a commodity to be a critical min mineral, it really begs to have public and private investment. So it just means that government should be standing side by side with banks or other financial institutions to um, quicken the pace at which these projects can come to market. Government's quickening the pace. That'll be a good one. <laughs> That's new news. Headline. Um, <laughs> but but it, is, it, is, it is kind of important to um, understand how you talk to government you know, the depend whether there's a dependence uh, on the government for the project to succeed or whether you're going to, you know, get on with the business of doing business. And if the government comes along, that, that's an added bonus. So, so, Matthew, we're not depending upon government investment. Um, if, government divest if government investment moves at a pace that suits our schedule, then it reduces our costs and helps our shareholders. So right. it, 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 it's not, we are not relying on it and... Um, um, if it happens, that's good for shareholders. And if it doesn't happen, um, the equity markets are such that um, we believe it's quite buoyant. Okay. So, Bryce, UBS uh, called you up and said, hey, come and talk to us about uh, nickel cobalt market and what's going on. What, what are their concerns? Or is it just a you know, catch up on the, on the, on the markets generically? I think it was more, I mean, obviously any investment bank's concerns are driven by what their clients are calling up and asking about. And uh, I think the they saw the opportunity to access and tap into three experts who typically we don't wheel out. I think I've mentioned that that, was the, the, that, that presentation was actually the first slide that Jevlar ever presented on nickel or cobalt in four years or three years since, since I joined in late 2017. Uh, at the UBS, um, at the at that UBS talk, so I guess we do believe that we've got something that was proprietary, and obviously that level of proprietary capability has kind of increased exponentially since these three guys came on as executives. But is, is, is that the commonality there? Because UBS think big, obviously, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to be deployed. But you were talking quite a big language, as I say, it's four hundred million dollar company, so it's not it's not nothing. But in the scheme of things, also, it's it, you're not anywhere where you want to be. So 
is it that big thinking that they're looking for? They're looking for ideas about how they how they can take advantage of these markets. And if so, what do you tell them? No, I think the context was they wanted to talk about nickel. And I can tell you the number of times that Greg got wheeled out at Glencore to talk about nickel was probably zero. Um, I mean, for most of their existence at Glencore, the better, there was no interaction, even though he's one of the even though obviously he's got the, I mean, it was just wasn't something that culturally was done. Um, now, Glencore's different at it now. Like kind of, they've obviously changed their investor relations approach, I mean, 180 degrees since when Greg was there. Um, but UBS, obviously, the capability and they understand between Greg and, I mean, the two guys working for Greg as well, I mean, they're each strong, as strong a commercial executive as you, as you, in their respective commodities um, as you get in any any company. And so to get access to that on a single call, like that's really, and it's topical, yeah? I mean, I think, as I said, Ching San came out with their announcement on converting uh, ferronickel to matte. Nickel fell 7%. And that's where you can kind of see that there's a bit of an angle because, uh, I mean, injecting sulfur into matte, it's not new. Uh, PT Inco has been doing it in, uh uh, Donny Ambo has been doing it for like 50 years. And for those of us in the industry, like we knew this was going on for, it was, it was kind of, I almost considered it public knowledge. So the fact that you can have nickel swing 7% on something that we all take for granted, just you realise that there is an information delta out there that, uh, and that's really what the banks are trying to access. Yeah, and then, well, there's a big conversation um, going on about H-Pound too, you know, the, the, the creator and destroyer of value. For decades, yeah. so was that was that product? Uh, yeah, why don't you flick across to Klaus and uh, okay. his, I mean, Klaus has got a background in nickel, and I mean, the context is I sent him down to Indonesia um, or Australia to cover Indonesia uh, back when uh, back when nickel pig was evolving. The only criticism I'd have is that his supply forecasts were slightly wrong. I don't think we ever had kind of nine hundred thousand ton of nickel pig coming out of Indonesia in twenty twenty one. But aside from that, I'll uh, pass across. <laughs> it was the, it was the rain. It's the rain. Um, so, well, why don't you give us a little bit of a, your background for us, class? Before and I know um, we've heard something from um, Bryce, but give us your version. Yeah, sure. I'm I'm a I'm, a, I'm an engineer by background. I I, um, I cut my teeth in operations, really. So I spent probably about half my career actually running smelters and refineries um, and the like. And then the second half of my career, I've really been in a more commercial role, trading intermediates, um, buying and selling, you know, um, mostly intermediates, um, particularly for the nickel and cobalt industry. I have some exposure to copper as well. Um, uh, as Bryce mentioned, I ran the international trading business for Extrata for about eight years out of, out of, out of Europe. Um, and that's essentially my background. Right. Okay. So... I want, to, I want to understand what was discussed with UBS with regards to Matt. What, what were you saying to them? What, why is it a big deal or not a big deal? What's your take on what that's going to do for HPAL going forward? Um, my personal take on it is it's quite an interesting development. Um, you kind of have, I mean, and we've known for a long time that you can convert nickel pig iron or ferro-nickel to Matt. That's not new. It's been done for many, many years. But I think what's interesting is you now have a kind of industry that's developing in Indonesia where they're, they're, it looks like, and if everything goes according to plan, there'll be a fair amount of capacity installed in Indonesia to convert ferro-nickel to mat, which essentially means there is, there's kind of a bridge between class one and class two nickel, which was more difficult to attain before. Um, and especially if they kind of install the type of capacities they're talking about, which I think is where the interesting aspect comes in. It's almost like it's going to be a swing kind of producer. So if the economics are right, ferro-nickel will be converted to mat to feed class one nickel. But at the same time, there, there may be conditions where that doesn't occur and, and ferro-nickel stays within the, within the stainless steel industry. It just goes into that, that particular commodity and I think for me the most interesting part is that you know what what I think what a lot of people don't understand is that conversion to mat going through a converter converters are pieces of equipment that are readily turned on and off you know they're, they're not like HPAL units if you start an HPAL you never want to stop it you kind of want to run that for the next 30 years 
but you can switch a converter on and off within months, you know, um, and that's that's kind of the key for me. So it, it really becomes a true swing between the two classes of, of nickel, which will happen or not happen depending on the economics of the day. Right, because we, we've, we've had the class one, class two debate for about the last year, and people have come on and talked about you know, intermediates as the, as the way forward. There is, there is no class one, class two anymore going forward. It's all about the intermediate, right? So, I mean, just without sitting on the fence, I mean, where, where do you think we're going to end up? Um, I personally believe that we will get HPALs being developed. They'll take time. Um, the technology is, I think it's more well understood today than it was, say, 10 years ago. And we have had success stories, success, success stories in HPAL. There are, there are a number of operating units that have been very successful, you know, especially the Sumitomo operations out of, out of the Philippines. Um, I think one of the key kind of determinants for success or non-success, and if you just look at the projects that are out, that are out there, is the ones of it that have tried to do too much on a single site are the ones that have struggled. So the very large Goros, Amber Tobies, you know, 50, 60,000 ton of nickel, not just producing an intermediate, going to final product. You know, they've all struggled far more than the ones that have said, okay, I'm just gonna put in an HPAL front end, I'm gonna drop out an, a mixed hydroxide product, I'm gonna let the refineries take care of that, and I'm gonna focus on the front end, I'm gonna get that right. So they've been more successful than the ones that haven't done that. Now, what you're seeing in Indonesia is there's a mix. So most companies are looking to make intermediates and they're just basically kind of going to copy the guys that have been a success. And I think that's probably positive. But there are others that are talking about going all the way through to sulfide production. And it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. I think I'm not convinced that's a sound strategy. It's probably better to kind of put an HPAL in front end make a mixed hydroxide and sell that to the refiners who know what they're doing with that product. Um, there are some challenges in Indonesia, I think, with HPAL. Um, you know, environmentally, tailings is an issue. I don't think deep sea tailings deposition is something that's going to be allowed going forward. So you've got to find what you're going to do with the tailings. So, you know, you can go to traditional tailings dams. It's not ideal. You have to be very careful in places like Indonesia. They've got masses of amount of rain. Um, so I think that's a real challenge for the HPAL operations, more so than actually operating the front end autoclaves and producing mixed hydroxide. I think making sure that you're able to deal with the tailings is probably going to be a bigger risk than actually running the HPAL operations. Um, and I think that'll happen. And I think structurally that will be, because they've got a lower greenhouse gas emissions, those will be the preferred methods of supply of nickel into the into the market. But if those units don't don't arrive, you're going to have the swing supply of the map production. Right. Okay. Interesting. Well, certainly the environmental component. You talk about think places like Rami, which have you know had a few issues, uh, republicity yeah. on that front. Um, just coming to the, the beginning and the front end of that, which is, again, why people like UBS having these conversations is interesting to me, which is how did these things get funded? Because HPAL, you know, we're talking, what you know, Sumitomo, what, 1.3, 1.4 billion, all the way up to, you know, projects which are now have sucked in 10 billion bucks worth of investment, right? So it, it takes a lot of money to get HPAL off the ground. Is that a barrier for people like UBS? Is it a barrier for the kind of larger institutions when they sort of, you're being asked to do that, given the, the number of car crashes on the, on the side of the road when it comes to nickel over the years? Yes, look, I mean, <laughs> the reality is all those projects went ahead. They weren't expecting to have those price tags on them. Um, that's just how it developed. I think the industry's moved a long way from that now. And again, I think it's, focusing on the things that work. I mean, if someone was to build an HPAL today, I don't think they'd expect the kind of cost overruns that they were expecting before, particularly if you focus on, you know, just, just working on the fundamentals that work well. So the front end, it's not good. Look, there's always going to be costs, especially in places like Indonesia, because in a lot of, lot of parts of Indonesia, there's not a lot of infrastructure. So, you know, infrastructural costs, 
add a lot to the bottom line of, of these kind of projects. Um, but again, I think if you can keep them kind of scaled to a size that makes sense, not too large, and um, you know, build them in areas where perhaps you don't have to build your own power, perhaps you don't have to you know, put in ports, all these type of things, the costs can be more manageable. But I agree with you. I think in the past, there's been a, there's been a significant learning curve. Um, just point, what I would say, though, is that we're 20 years down the line now, and um, I think things have moved on. So we'll see. I mean, the HPL projects in Indonesia are being built. They'd be the first ones commissioning now. So we'll see how they, um, how they move, up, move forward. Bryce? I was just going to say, on that call that was set up, so there's 70 institutions. I mean, my tip is none are investing in HPL, not a single one. It's Chinese investment into Indo. I mean, the only, sure, there's a couple of junior mining companies who are trying to build HPL on poor quality ore bodies in Australia. Uh, but it's, it's a game that no one, I mean, Western, Western investors, they've got no interest in going into Indonesia and dumping tailings into bays and going through the country. And Indonesia is Indonesia. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like buying an Argentine bond, yeah? At some point, you know it's going to get defaulted upon. When you invest in Indonesia, you know at some point they're going to change the rules. That's Indonesia. And I think Indonesia's grand ambitions of where they view themselves geopolitically is not, being, is not allowing China to export their climate um, compliance across to the country uh, with regard to coal emissions and in regard to greenhouse gas emissions and in regard to tailings depositions. They've got grander ambitions and that involves going downstream. They want to become the Saudi Arabia of, um, of the nickel industry. And if you look at the numbers, they're off to a hell of a start. Yeah, well, I, we've, we've certainly seen some of the estimates around the, the cost of some of these projects, but what they'll end up being is, is another matter. Um, but yeah, Indonesia, Philippines, China, Triangle is something that you know we have to, have to pay attention to because there's a need there on the demand side, there's a need for it. So the question is around ethics and, you know, what Greg was talking about, you know, if you look, you look for ethical sourcing in the West, perhaps you need to be in control of that, um, that all of that supply chain uh, for sure. Um, okay. Well, look, it, Klaus, that, that, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. We kind of better bring Wade in here and talk a little bit of cobalt and then perhaps we're going to have a bit more of a holistic conversation about what you're building here. Hi, Wade. How are you? I'm very happy to jump in and, and talk about cobalt along the same same lines. You know, cobalt uh, cobalt demand is uh, growing at a pace that's un, un, unprecedented as as the battery EV market takes off, and so cobalt's quite interesting space these days. But it's tiny. Does anyone care about cobalt anymore? Well, certainly Gervois cares about cobalt, and uh, I personally care about cobalt. I've been involved in the cobalt market for over 30 years in a variety of capacities, uh, as uh, mentioned earlier. A uh, uh, long-time history with uh, cobalt, cobalt chemicals, cobalt metal trading, and, and even uh, cobalt raw materials out of DRC through, through the... Uh, through the Chinese sources. So, so where is it going? Because we saw cobalt come back, make us a brief comeback three years ago. Prices went crazy. New cobalt companies popping up everywhere. Um, what was the real situation in terms of the, 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 on the demand side? Well, the demand side is definitely projected to triple and the next, the need for materials to, to as much as triple over the next five to 10 years. And there's a pipeline of projects in place that, if you look at the various supply demand balance projections out there, anywhere from maybe we get there to a 10, 12,000 ton deficit uh, emerges in, in three, four years. So it's really, it's really going to be a matter of how fast the actual demand grows versus how fast the actual supply grows, as is always the case. But, uh, but it's, it's our view that uh, the supply growth in most of that has to come from DRC is not going to keep up pace with the demand growth. Okay, so let's, let's talk about DRC, the sort of poster child of how to do bad PR when it comes to, co you know, cobalt. So you know, you're talking about ethical production here. You've been in, and worked in the DRC. Do they, is it just a simple case of the cobalt is going to keep coming out of 
uh, DRC, but they may be going to encourage to sort of change their ways in terms of, I think child labor seems to be the, the line that's well, there, most often there, that. There's a massive effort underway to for all of the projects in Africa, in DRC and throughout Africa to sort of get up to, you know, sort of the societal requirements of, of no child labor and, and environmental awareness and capabilities. And, and that's happening. And that's been happening over the last, you know, decades, but it's, it's reached the point now where the major industrial suppliers have, have uh, ticked all those boxes and are, are achieving what would be considered compliance in those areas. And so the expectations are that the new projects have to do that or they won't make it to market. Right. So how, how significant is the, the cobalt production out of the DRC? You know, is it, so are they able to control pricing in the marketplace? Does it make it difficult for companies like you wanting to do the same thing elsewhere? Well, I, I don't think any of the projects are able to quote unquote control pricing. Supply and demand controls pricing, of course. And the way that big actors and big players in all markets, but especially cobalt, which is a very opaque market, is, is they manage their, their production and supply to, to hopefully meet demand and keep prices where their projects are profitable. Okay. And that's very much the case in cobalt. You'll see, you'll see projects opened and closed or production ramped up or ramped down to try and do that. So, I mean, I, I sort of joked earlier on about the, the size of the, co the cobalt market, and but you, you picked a key word there, opaque. So there, there's different ways that the price is set in the market because not too many people follow or, or, or track it, because it, it, it is a very small, um, in, in terms of metric tons. How, yeah. how, many, how, how is pricing set? So pricing is really, price, price uh, determination is, is, is really done by uh, publications, trade publications, uh, canvassing the market and understanding what transactions have happened. Um, Pricing is set by buyers and sellers and bids and offers and, and deals getting done. And those are two different things, right? In an opaque market, not every one of the deals that gets done gets reported to the to the publications who are, are determining the, the published prices. Um, it's been that way forever in cobalt. There are uh, some terminal markets handling cobalt. The LME has been in cobalt for nearly 10 years. And now the CME is doing cobalt, which has actually gotten a little bit of traction. So as cobalt becomes more mainstream and the OEMs get involved in cobalt, it's my expectation that we'll start to see terminal markets have a bigger impact in the market. Uh, but that's probably still down the road a bit. Okay, so you, you guys are out of Glencore, you know, you're, you're traders at heart um, here. Um, I know that you, you and class are looking at sort of operational side of the of the business too. But um, if I'm if I'm looking at the the cobalt market and, and the positioning that Greg's given us. Which is ethical. Right? We've, we've got to be ethical about this one. You've just said that DRC is sorting its business out, so it's all ethical if that happens, isn't it? So in which case, well, what's so different about you guys? There are maybe a couple of tiers in the DRC where you've got the major industrial players who are working themselves out, and then another tier which is maybe you know another half of that is still you know a few steps behind in that process, and that's where Gervois brings a, a, a nice. Uh, alternative is we're going to be a U.S.-based mine with uh, refining in Brazil, managing the units from from the ground to the market, and uh, you know bringing those cobalt cathode units back from Brazil to the U.S. as as you know at the U.S. source U.S. origin material refined in Brazil with with no DRC or Chinese component whatsoever, and that you know that's that's the that's the part where I I find that we're going to be bringing value. Does that come back to kind of this critical, critical minerals component we talked about earlier? Because, you know, it's not Chinese, it's not DRC, it's all this sort of language of protectionism. It, it, but is that what the market needs for, to stand out? Well, if you're a if you're a OEM or a consumer in the U.S. and you absolutely need to have that, right? That's that's going to be the case. And there's always going to be a question if you're if you're bringing stuff out of China, where where did the original material start out if what's one of the sort of bottom tier suppliers out of the DRC and maybe they're not quite up to speed yet on all the ESG issues you're never going to know but if you go with a, a Gervois entirely you know entirely transparent supply chain then it's, then it's an obvious answer to that question. So he's he's, he's sort of, I, I get these sort of um, 
the, you know, the traceability and um, the responsibility and OEMs will be demanding that, you know, that that, that, that exists. But who's, who's regulating that? Who is tracking that? Who pays for that? Well, there's, there's an industry uh, effort underway to, to sort of standardize that. But today there are a number of organizations that are all sort of offering ways to get to that sort of confirmed compliance and Responsible Minerals Initiative is the is the one that seems to have gotten the most traction and getting the most uh, effort by by the existing players. But there are a number of others that are underway, such as CIRAF from the Cobalt Institute and uh, another development called the Copper Mark, which the Copper Market has been using to 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 identify their ESG compliant suppliers and the industry is talking about a metal mark or some something like that as well. So there are a number of uh, things underway, but today it's the Responsible Minerals Initiative that is the most traction. So what have you got to do to actually start getting cobalt out of the ground? From an ESG perspective, we're operating in a, in a jurisdiction that's going to make that quite straightforward. It's really just uh, proceeding, following all the rules and regulations that would be a place for the U.S. and getting getting that responsible minerals initiative sort of template tick boxed and and it's a, it's an easy case for us. How long does that take? Uh, the process once we're up and operational would be just like an audit process, so it shouldn't take so long. It's 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 something that you can't really get done until you're actually operational, though. So we're we're laying the framework so that'll be in place when we're ready to go. Okay, and so when are, when are you aiming for? What's the, what's the timeline and all of this? Uh, I'll have Bryce. Oh, Bryce, you've got the answers. Uh, well, we're starting San Miguel next year, and uh, Idaho will be starting commissioning as well. So uh, we've got the stage restart at San Miguel Paulista based on materials that it's processed in the past. So that's what uh, Wade and Klaus are busy doing, uh, talking to cobalt hydroxide suppliers, cobalt intermediate suppliers in the case of Wade and Klaus focused more on the nickel. So materials that the, that the facility processed in the past, MHP primarily, mixed hydroxides, and also nickel sulfide supplies because we're putting in a, in a box autoclave as well. So, I mean, that's the exciting thing for us. Yeah, it's um, short, uh, short runway to production and low risk restart because the attraction of San Miguel is, it's, I mean, it's, uh, we all know the facility. So Wade used to supply material from Tenki. Uh, Klaus visited a number of times. And Greg uh, had a long commercial relationship with Votran Tim, sold the Tokan Tins product in the States for decades. Uh, so, and the fact that it's, uh, it's just exciting because it's, this is a facility that's been operating, operated for 30 years. The Tokan Tins brand is well known and bringing it back to market is, is kind of low risk. And that's really where we're focused on is kind of risk minimization. So I, I, get all, I, I, get, I get that. And we did talk about it earlier in the week, but how do you fill it? How, you know, you, you're going to have to, I mean, that's, I guess that's class probably back to you. You've got to fill this thing and make some money. What's going on out there? Yeah, well, that's correct. I mean, and, and, and you know, the facility itself is actually a 25,000 tonne per annum nickel facility. And we're not, we're not planning to start it at that. I mean, if you were to say to me tomorrow, can you fill 25,000 tonne today? I'd say no. But we're starting... You know, we're going, to, we're going to walk before we run. We, we, our plan is to start at around 10,000 tonne. I mean, I think that's a far more achievable number. Uh, we've been talking to many, many players in the industry around a number of different materials that are available. Um, there are materials available. Um, you, you're going to have to source from a number of different players to get that. But it's, you know, I think that's, it's an achievable number. It's not, it's not shooting for the moon. Right. Okay. Is that... In the greater scheme of things, it's only ten thousand tons out of a, you know, a much larger market, and intermediates are traded all the time. Well, that's what I was going to with Bryce actually, because never, never a man to spend a penny uh, or buy a drink, uh, but he's also knows how to make a few quid. So everyone's smiling at that. Has anyone here ever been bought a drink by Bryce? No, no. Okay, um, <laughs> you know how to make money though. So are you tempted, um, given the, the timelines here, to actually do a little bit of trading, make a few quid on the side? 
in terms of uh, how we, the economics that we expect to raise. Given what these guys know, you're all traders, right? You, you know the market, you can understand the dynamics in the market. You've got a few things to do on the ground, but is there other opportunities and revenue streams contribution to doing a little bit of trading while you're at it? I guess what we're looking to build is a trading book, yeah? I mean, that's why, these, that's why Greg and Wade and Klaus came on. But between now and then... If I was going to sell, I mean, if we were going to sell all of the units to a single automaker, that like that's that's like every other four hundred million dollar mining company wants to. Um, that's you don't need these guys to do that. With respect, if you look at the way Glencore structures his their book and the way Greg's book would have been run in the US, I and mean, then obviously Greg was on Glencore's side, so I never was privy to the um, to the full to the to the inside of the book. But I guarantee you. His book wouldn't have had more than five, ten percent concentration with any one counterparty. It was about building up a, a blend of suppliers in, a, a blend of customers going out, and, um, and managing pricing exposures and QPs and keeping the units flowing. Um, these businesses, they're good businesses. Yeah, I mean that that's the the nature of building up a trading business around San Miguel. Uh, you never lose money on a contract. If you lose money, it's because someone screwed up the QPs, they screwed up the contract, or the operators down in Brazil didn't process material when they were supposed to, or someone didn't manage the, the freight going in or the logistics going out. Uh, these are good businesses. I mean, Greg, what's your, do you want to comment a little on how you, you see the value of San Miguel and the trading culture that yeah. we're starting to build? Um, I would say that we are assessing opportunities, Matt, and I'm not trying to really not answer your question other than we're not just going to just get into a high risk trading business for the sake of getting into a trading business. Um, if we can commercially make some money that doesn't jeopardize our um, our asset base coming to market, then we would assess that at the time. Okay. Uh, I would also like to add something when you said, who cares about cobalt? Um you know, it, it, it's the OEMs and the battery side that's getting all the glitter these days. But the old cobalt uh, markets, um, radial tires, uh, catalysts, paint pigment, um, I'm sorry, pigment for glass, paint dryers, uh, defense, aerospace, land-based turbines. These businesses are mature, they're growing. We have pent up demand coming from aerospace due to the pandemic. Um, these, these people, they care about cobalt. They've been trying to substitute it for decades. They've substituted every pound of cobalt they can out of it and they need it. Yeah, I know that we've been speaking with battery manufacturers, um, as well, and they're struggling to, um, secure cobalt for, you know, the next five, 10 years. It's, it, there's a battleground out there. Now, I do, I do understand the, the cobalt market. I'm invested in it. So, yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying. Um, uh, where was I going to go? I was going to talk um, about, uh, back to SMP, if I may. I had a conversation yesterday with someone from Macquarie Bank and um, on, the, on the topic of nickel. So, Klaus is pro probably going to come back at you on this one. He sort of showed me the list on the supply side of all the companies uh, who are talking the language of being able to produce nickel into the market. And I've forgotten what the, the bottom number, bottom line number was, but in five years' time, it wasn't anywhere near the number being claimed today. He said about half of those companies will get into production because of the CapEx component. Western banks and institutions are terrified of these big ticket numbers. And I think maybe, I think Wade, you kind of maybe alluded to that too. So on the supply side, what's your take on the nickel market? Um, we know what the demand numbers is and we know there's going to be a big delta, but do you think it's going to be an even bigger delta if, if these uh, companies currently claiming to be able to get into production don't? And then what happens? Yeah, uh, it's a good point. And I think that's uh, somewhat to what Bryce was saying earlier is that, you know, um, there's not a lot of Western banks that are looking to invest in these very large projects because just the risks are too high and no one's really building HPALs anywhere else. But it'll be driven by the demand. I think ultimately to get the units out, some of these larger projects will have to get off the ground um, just to meet the demand. And a lot of it will be covered by what's happening in, in, in Indonesia. But as we move forward and the, and, and the demand just grows by magnitudes as, as is currently expected, you're going to have to see 
pricing incentive to drive those projects forward, as far as I'm concerned. Um, otherwise, they'll just never happen. Well, I think, I think, like dint of basic economics, that pricing pricing will be there. Um, um, that, okay, so, so well, Matt, just to add, just to add something to that, the difficulty and the difficulty of investment and the supply chain um, dynamics that have occurred in Indonesia will probably lead to lack of investment in refinery space for nickel. So that you're probably going to have, in terms of where is there a constriction in a supply chain, that's where it will probably um, really manifest itself. Good news for you guys. Right news. I think that was the point. Yeah, that's a good, good, good point. Uh, I think, I mean, if you look at, there's no real ambiguity as I see it about battery chemistry. I mean, if you look across outside of China and we've got, I mean, the, the majority of the European and uh, US automakers under NDA, and it's, it's high nickel. I mean, it's, uh, there can be some debate around which NMC uh, chemistry or how NCA and whether it's in, and how low they'll go um, in terms of how high nickel they'll go, but it's really high nickel. And uh, you need, if you've got nickel, you need cobalt. I mean, nickel provides the density and the performance. So, well, the den so it gets you the the characteristics, if you like, that make Tesla such a, such a success. But it's also the, the the cobalt provides the stability in the battery, and safety is obviously critical. So, as Greg said, like anyone, I mean, <laughs> Greg and Wade, everyone who's substituted cobalt has already done it. Uh, the DRC has been a complicated place since the Belgians left. It's not like it just changed 10 years ago. Um, so, and it's been substituted for complications around geopolitical instability. And now it's ESG. I mean, nobody wants to end up in a panoramic documentary. Right? And the reality is today, uh, I mean, Wade talked about the auditing of supply chains processes, but I can assure you there's not many buyers from Western automakers that want to be going to the DRC every two months for the next five years in a certain, in, whilst they're kind of going through and auditing their supply chains. It's, it's a complicated. And I think that what we're looking to create with gaining a footprint into the US through San Miguel Paulista gives us an entry into the into Europe as well, probably a quarter of the production historically found its way into Europe, the, the remainder of Japan. Uh, but I think that there's a real uh, business case to set up and work with customers. And obviously Greg, Wade and Klaus have that, they've got the relationships. I mean, they've got that background. They, they can come in and enter. Um, and really make a difference. Okay, and so how, how, where does your growth come from? You've got organic growth, which you're in control of now, but in the current market, in this current market that you're looking at, and Greg, maybe, you know, did chime in if you want here. Things just got expensive, right? If you look, you're looking for talk. So how, how, how do you show the market growth? Because you've got to tell the, you've got to deliver on the ground, with, which is what Klaus and Wade have got to do, but you two have also got to talk to the market about growth and organic is maybe not going to be enough, is it? So Matt, when you say um, it's expensive, if you look at the forward price curve from any leading institution, um, there's considerable appreciation yet to come in this market or at least expected appreciation. So I think there are still considerable opportunities out there for growth. Um, as I said, both organic and inorganic. Meaning it's also can we find a, can we find an angle like where what where can we find an asymmetric situation where we can come in, see an opportunity that others can't come in, do things a different way. I mean that's what guided in our early in the early period when I was with Jebwai. We thought we had an angle in Africa. It turns out the angle got close, but it uh, for a number of reasons didn't convert. And I think that there are opportunities out there, but clearly we're not going to go and blow our brains out. Like we're not trying to build an empire. None of us have to do this. And to be fair, I mean, we're not doing it for, we're not in Jevois for philanthropic reasons either. I mean, we're all major shareholders. We're all heavily exposed to the, um, to the, to a, to, a, to a rising share price. I mean, if we, if we're a four, if we go from a $400 million company to a $4 billion company in five years and the share price is 40 cents, none of us are particularly happy. So it's not about just growing the company for the sake of growth. Uh, and I do think that, as Greg said, there are opportunities out there. I mean, we have to be clever, have to move, think about how we we will, will move quickly. Um, but I mean, again, with the, you made an observation on trading. I mean, there's no speculation. So if you look at how a trader runs a book, 
the only pricing exposure that goes in there is the pricing exposure, which is purposely kind of left in. Um, you typically, I mean, we're locking in contracts, we're locking it and we're managing that exposure through San Miguel Paulista. Sure, we've got the embedded exposure through the free carry through because we pay less than what we re- we pay less for the metal than what we sell it for ultimately. Um, so there's embedded metal exposure within the refinery, uh, but it's not like you're speculating on the raw material cost. That's not our business. It's certainly not. And to be fair, I mean, it's something that's typically misunderstood. Uh, it's not the fundamental foundation of Glencore's business either or other traders' business. I mean, um, it's really around facilitating product flows and, and managing risk. Um, and that's, I think, where we've got the capability to set up a, a low-risk business around an industrial asset, which is uh, a little different. I mean, not many groups could do this, yeah? I mean, not many groups our size could go into refining. We don't have the operating team on, but we could set up a similar call and I could have Mike, uh, Michael Rodriguez and um, Roger, Roger Ariel Canoni and Valdesia Bottasini, the team, the refinery team. Obviously, Peter Johnson's run a number of large businesses involving refineries. San Miguel Polista will be our fourth. Uh, so we, I guess we've got, we kind of know our lanes, um, which I think organisationally works. And I think that we've got the capability, we've got to, we've got the depth to do something really interesting in the space. And it is, uh, I mean, the, the math doesn't add up. Yeah, you look at those numbers. I mean, obviously, you take some of the car, the numbers coming out of certain car makers in the states with a grain of salt, but they're mind-boggling the numbers. I mean, the last time I went to South Korea, you kind of add the, I mean, customers that I was barely selling a ton of nickel to alongside Glencore, and you go back in. I mean, and they're almost triple-digit kind of figures, and the, the, the numbers are just um, phenomenal coming out of uh, South Korea. Uh, nickel's in for a really exciting future, I think. and it's But it's very, very predicated on that Chinese-Indian uh, Indo supply um, because, b- to be clear, the Indonesian supply is controlled also, heavily controlled by, by China. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, yeah, it is. Um, and do you think Philippines has got a say in the matter? I think Philippines, I mean, it's, it's got great geology. I think it's a challenging jurisdiction. Equally, as Klaus said, there's a couple of fantastic success stories. Um, Coral Bay, Taganito, I mean, probably the two best HPELs in terms of execution that there are. But again, Philippines is, it's not like investing in Idaho, <laughs> I can tell you that, in terms of geopolitical risk. It's just not. No, of course not. Well, look, guys, I'm just so conscious of the time here. I'm... I got a lot out of that. I think that the timing's fantastic for both of these commodities. I love the big thinking that you guys apply from day one. Um, you know, come back and let us know. You know how you get on with some of some of those deliverables and um, your expansion plans, growth plans too. I'll be delighted to uh, speak to you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.